All right, good morning, everyone. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. So we're going to focus our attention this morning, John chapter 6. <clears throat> well, the topic of this morning is food. Um, and John chapter 6 has food as its focus. And I thought, how appropriate uh, that we're here. Not a focus that I struggle with, uh, meaning I'm quite glad to preach on this topic. Um, this is an interesting passage of scripture that, and it's interesting for two reasons, okay? Uh, one is its focus, but secondly, this miracle and the miracle of the resurrection are the only two miracles that are recorded in every gospel, okay? So it is the most repeated event in the gospels along with the resurrection, Okay, that should that a, a bit of a penny should drop. There should be like, okay, that that is a notable observation from the New Testament Gospels that these two events, resurrection and the miracle of the feeding of the five thousand, show up in every gospel. So, with that in mind, I want to read uh, beginning in verse one of John six. It says, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Jesus went up to the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we find bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, and the indication from the text is sometime later in the day, Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one of these to have a bite. Another of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will that go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down, about 5,000 men, probably the, the total number of people, if you count men, women, and children, extrapolates up to somewhere around 15,000 people. Jesus took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. It's a very interesting story, very interesting account. Uh, why are the crowds following Jesus? Right? Verse 2 makes the observation, a great crowd of people followed him. And if you look at this in the original language, you're going to find just uh, three words that are in this, they kept doing it. They kept following him. Because they kept seeing as Jesus kept 
performing miracles. Okay, so there's a bit of a, of a vibe, if you will, around the ministry of Jesus that he is continually delivering people from temporary afflictions. Okay, and the people are committed to following because as they're following, they keep seeing Jesus performing miracles. And so the result of that is that crowds have become attracted to him. The other thing you'll note in the text, verse 3, Jesus and the disciples went up on a mountainside. And if you read the other gospel accounts, you'll find that they've gone aside to get a break. The disciples have come back from a season of intense ministry, and they're desiring a time of respite. Jesus invites them to get a break. But while they're sitting resting, it says Jesus saw great crowds coming towards him. Okay, and that kind of sets up the scene of this story. So here's what happens. First, you'll see there is in this account a rising tension. Okay, this observation of the part of Jesus, large crowds coming, following, seeing, because Jesus was performing, leads to a question from Jesus. And I, I love, I love this. And there's something about Christ dealing with his disciples that I find at times humorous and wise. Crowd's coming, and he looks at his disciples and says, how are you guys going to pull off feeding this crowd? And if you put the gospel accounts together, you realize it's earlier in the day that they go to the mountainside. They see the crowds coming. Jesus poses a question and then spends perhaps hours teaching the multitudes. And then he comes back to the disciples and says, how's it going? Okay, that's kind of the, the way this text flows. So the rising tension, many coming, Jesus asked a question, verse 5 says, and he asked the question to test them, to not to cause them to fail. Okay, my perspective of test in high school was the teacher just wanted to see how poorly I would do. Okay, that's not what Jesus is doing. It's, it's to test them, to gauge their progress in faith, to see how they're doing. His aim is not to cause them to stumble. His aim is to grow them through the struggle that he's going to sovereignly lead them into. And I want you to notice that that is an important part of this. He asked the question of the text, where can you get to test? Where can you get enough bread? Because the keeping of the crowd, holding them till later in the day, began to create an expectation. Dinner time's coming. If you don't send them into the villages to get food, we feel more and more responsible. And for the disciples, the possibility of embarrassment was incredibly high. And so the tension is rising, but the text gives, drops a hint, right? It says Jesus knew what he was going to do. Okay, so he says to them, how are you going to feed them? In parentheses, he knew what he was going to do. He was going to show them something about his glory that would be transformational for their lives. So that's the rising tension. After a period of teaching, Jesus comes to the 12 and he gives them what I'm going to call the impossible directive. Okay? And you'll notice how how this kind of lays out. When Jesus saw the great multitude coming towards them, he said, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this to test them. He knew what he was going to do. And now you get into three responses. If you read through the three gospel or the four gospel accounts of this text, you're going to find Jesus gives an imperative command. 
you give them something to eat. Okay, so he calls them to do something that they don't have the capacity to do, but he does it to test them in order to reveal something very powerful about himself. Okay, so with this in the background, the disciples are coming to conclusions about the circumstance. Philip comes first. Verse 7. I'm going to call Philip the guy that has a budget. Okay, so he knows how much money the disciples have. He says a half year's wages would only buy a bite for every individual. So what is he saying? He's not raising hope that, hey, at least we can give him a nibble. No, what he's saying is the opposite. The circumstance is overwhelming. Our resources are inadequate. So he simply compares the resources to the need. And Philip comes up with a very quick and astute conclusion that we don't have enough. And I believe this. I believe Philip is speaking as a representative of the group of disciples. He's expressing the mutual concern of the group. Secondly, verse 8, Andrew speaks. And I'm going to argue that Andrew is the logical guy. He, he, Jesus says, well, what do you have? He says, well, we have five loaves and two fishes. But he pulls out his calculator. And he's very smart. And he figures out that five loaves and two fishes isn't enough to feed 5,000 people. And Jesus says, that's that's very great observation. Keen sense for the obvious, okay? That's where Andrew's coming from. Andrew focuses on the disparity between what they had and the need that was present. He doesn't bring hope into the circumstance. Here to me is the interesting part of this story. The disciples, as you read the other Gospels, have just come back from a time of ministry, and the text clearly states in three of the Gospels that they were healing people. Jesus sent them out and gave them authority and gave them power to bring healing to people, and they they had ministered to people, and they come back, and as they're resting, they're forgetting because they're focused on the next problem, and this is how we tend to live our lives, isn't it? When you read this account, I hope you don't say, come on. I hope you say that to yourself. Like, haven't you seen enough of God's work to know to trust Him in the circumstance that He's brought you into? Andrew struggles from what some call the paralysis of analysis, so focused on the details and the concerns that he can't see possibility. There is no sense of hope rising in Andrew's heart. And so the conclusion that they come up with on a repeated basis, and what I'm going to call the, the, the group response, and you'll find it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's a unanimous, prudent response, and it is, it's getting late, send them away. There's a lot of people. Okay, And they fear somewhat, somewhat of a, a very unstable type situation. Okay, And so the, the, the group of disciples unanimously say, send them away, And Jesus says in one of the Gospels, he says, they do not need to go. And you would think the disciples would just hit the pause button for a second, shut their mouths, and just listen to Jesus. They don't need to go away. Yes, the crowd's large, and yes, the hour's late, and yes, the place is remote. That's the assessment of the 12. Result, send them away. This is overwhelming. Three human Logical, yet inadequate responses to the test. Just after they get back from ministry. Can I ask you a question this morning? 
What circumstance in your life today is driving you to fear? The other thing I want you to see in this text is Jesus has sovereignly led the disciples into this crisis. He knew what he was going to do. He leads them into a crisis so, so that they can grapple with the identity of Jesus. And he's going to reveal something about himself in this text that will change their lives. And yet they're struggling and they're pushing back and send them away. It's late. It's large. It's... And I love the response of Christ. Undeterred, he says, you have them sit down. I don't know how you would respond to that if you were the disciples. Hey guys, you have them sit down. Now, if keeping them till late in the day raised expectations, okay, asking them to sit down in groups of 150, which would be the traditional way that you would feed people, you would break them into groups so there's not chaos, okay? And so Jesus says, you have them sit down. Here's what the text says. It says there was a lot of green grass there. The Gospel of Mark uses an interesting term to talk about the crowd reclining. All right, it's the same word that you'd be used in Psalm 23 in the Septuagint. He causes us to lie down in green pastures. What you're going to find as you read this text is, and this is just my way of referring to Old Testament sightings in the New Testament. When he says that bells ring, okay, it should be, that should ring a bell about something that you've heard before. And that's going to happen a number of times in this text, okay? So when he, he, he asked them, get them to recline, it, 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 it at some level rings a bell about and hints at the identity of Christ. And, and so what happens in the account is Jesus begins to break bread, the five loaves and two fishes, and I've always thought of this text in this fashion that the first disciple leaving with the better bread of ba or the basket of bread that's one of those isn't it all right the first guy leaving with a basket of bread is saying to the other guy walk slow all right good they they had no when jesus says tell them to sit down there should have been something in their mind right didn't we see something like this in john chapter 2 the wedding at Cana, they run out of wine. And what does Jesus do? He makes up for the lack that is present in a miraculous way. And there is an abundance. Here's the fascinating thing. Here's what tells me the disciples are men just like me. They're people just like us. It never enters their mind. It will later. Right? You remember the story in John chapter 11. The raising of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus doesn't get there in time. Their complaint is this. Couldn't he who did X, Y, and Z, couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? You're like, yeah, you get it now. But you don't get it here. Right? You don't get it in this circumstance. You don't respond with hope. You respond with despair and anxiety and negativism. Folks, we are people of the Most High God. And when we face circumstances that stretch us, that a sovereign God has allowed to come into our lives, He aims to test you through it, to grow your faith, to bring you to a place of deeper trust in Him. And so this is a, a beautiful picture. Have them sit down in His capable hands. 
sparse resources become an adequate and overwhelming supply. Folks, that's the story of the Bible. That's the story of Jesus. He takes the inadequate things, sparse things, and turns them into abundance. That's why he says to the disciples, more than any other command in the New Testament, do not be afraid. You know what he understands? He understands that they're struggling with the ramifications of who Christ is. They see glimpses of it. At the wedding in Canaan, you could not go away not saying, we're with him, okay? Like, he solved the problem. We're with him. But the next circumstance comes up and they act like us. They forget the previous thing. And what is Jesus doing? Line upon line, circumstance upon circumstance, he is building the faith of his disciples, to make them the men that they never imagined they could be. That's what Jesus does. That's the aim and intent of this text. And I love the way that this story then ends in verses 12 through 13. So you go through the account. You guys know the story. Jesus begins to break the bread. The text, in, in, in none of the four Gospels does the text attempt to answer the question, how did it happen? Right? Because that's my question. Here's what we do know. The only one breaking and multiplying bread was Jesus. Okay, because only he was capable of such a thing. So then the meal's over and the 12 are looking at Jesus like, that was cool. Right? And here's what he says to them. He says, go gather everything that remains. And I love the way this, I love the way this ends. This is the lesson. Okay? Pick up the remains. Pick up the leftovers of the five fish or five loaves and two fish that weren't enough. Why does he do that? I think the, I think the answer to the question is very obvious. He wants them to be in the joy of this moment. He wants them to gather from the abundance of Christ's provision because he did it to test them, to teach them something about himself. And the text says that they went and they gathered 12 baskets full. And the text stops there so we can only kind of assume in our minds the way the next part works out, right? So you have the 12 disciples. They've gone out and they've gathered 12, and and I I wrote this word down because I kept struggling with it, basketfuls. Okay, I was going to say baskets full, but that's, it's basketfuls. Okay, now standing in front of Jesus are 12 disciples who said what? Send them away. We don't have enough. The hour is late. The crowd is too large. You know what the text records? Nothing. No words from Christ. You know why? If you're standing there with 12 basketfuls, you don't have to say anything. Okay? The answer to their concern is in their hands. And I just, I love the irony of that. To me, that is a beautiful, ironic scene. The ones who said there's not enough stand with the leftovers of God's provision. Now, here's what I think is going on at some level. This text causes me to focus on bread. Okay? And if you're somewhat literate in the Old Testament, you know that This idea of 12 and bread holds a very significant, substantial place in the teaching of the Old Testament. 
Okay, you know that in the Old Testament, God used a leader named Moses who said to God, where am I going to get food? Like, I did what you told me to do. We're out in the wilderness now. They're getting hungry, and it doesn't sound good. Right, you think teenage boys are bad, right? Teenage boys come home from school, and I always used to say to my mom, I am starving. Which is a bit ironic, right? Honey, you could probably go four days without eating. You'd be okay. You are not starving. Right? So in this account, Moses cries out to God, and God provides something called manna. Manna literally means, what is it? Okay? So they go out, and they're told, you cannot gather any for tomorrow. Why? Because God wants us to walk in daily dependence upon Him for bread. Bread simply in the Old Testament economy, in the New Testament economy, that time frame, bread was simply the sustenance of life. All right? They were kind of Italian, okay? Bread was just, it's always there, all right? It wasn't a meal if it wasn't there. Okay, that, that's the ancient world. It was, it was, it was the, the sustenance. Here's how you know that. Think what Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, Right? He says, give us this day daily bread. The, the translation literally is bread for the day, which is exactly what Moses, by the hand of God, provided for Israel in the wilderness. Bread for the day. If you save it, it will rot by the next morning. It's exactly what happened. You know what God was teaching his people? I want you to trust me. This miracle swings on the Old Testament truths of manna Also, it swings upon the Old Testament truth of 12 tribes, the people of God, 12 loaves in the tabernacle representing God's provision for his people. Okay? And when you come into the New Testament, Jesus is saying, when you pray, say, Father, give us our daily bread. So here's what I see. As the disciples stand in front of Christ, there are 12. Okay? And I... I, I, the 12 disciples become symbolic of the New Testament, New Testament community, the church. And they are holding 12 basketfuls of bread. It simply says this. God is able to fully supply all of his people. So 12 representatives of the new covenant community called the church, holding 12 basketfuls of provision, God will meet the needs of all of his people. Okay, I think I, that to me is the kind of the why Jesus tells them, go collect them, and then they stand in front. It's the only way I can imagine the text. I don't imagine them walking off saying, I got my bread. <laughs> like, it's not. I just imagine, it ends, and they're like, okay. Focus of the text is on the importance of bread. Verse 5. It says, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, primarily the crowd now becomes the focus, not the 12. They got their lesson. But when the crowd saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. If you go back into Deuteronomy, I believe it's chapter 18, God promises a prophet like Moses. One who will function in the characteristics of Moses, but is greater than Moses. 
Okay, do you start to see the connection? Okay, Moses got bread from God, provided miraculously. Jesus, the greater Moses, breaks the bread and provides. Do you see the connection? The the focus of this text is on the person of Christ, but the crowd gets it wrong at a very important level. Okay, and notice what the text says. After the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they said, surely this is the prophet that was to come. And automatically, they switched from the prophetic bread-producing role, redeeming nature of Christ to he'd make an incredible king. They go political. And they, they're starting to get a plan together. Let's seize him and force him to be our king. I don't know about you, but to me, there's something humorous about that. Because it's really a desire. Let's domesticate Jesus. Let's get Jesus to do what we want him to do. But Jesus has been saying to his disciples all along, I came to do my Father's will, and I've come for an hour. I came for a specific purpose. And so the crowd wants to make him a king. What does Jesus do? He'll have nothing to do with popularity. His commitment to the Father's will is so strong that he can freely resist the call of power and prominence because he came not to be served, but to serve by giving his life a ransom for many. The exodus that Moses oversaw is the forecast of a prophet like Moses, but a greater prophet, a greater king, and a greater savior. He withdrew from the crowd, resisting their desire to elevate him, waiting for the hour. Okay, now let me give you these conclusions. Just a couple concluding observations from the text. These will be the applications. My, my one observation from this text, my one takeaway is that as the disciples work through the circumstance, the setting, the potential embarrassment of the setting is what's driving them. Does that make sense? They're afraid we don't have enough money, we don't have enough food, it's late, the crowd's large, it's remote. That was their list of complaints and concerns. After the miracle's done, okay, so during the circumstance, they're distancing themselves from Jesus. You ever done this with people? I don't think your decision-making is real sound. I'm going to create a little distance to protect my reputation, okay? Then I imagine the disciples leaving this circumstance. They've been through the test that aims to teach. And here, this is just my own humorous take on this. I see the disciples following Jesus like we're with him. Okay, he's our man. Because they had, they had gotten something new about Christ. As they stood there with the 12 baskets, the test is complete and the lesson has been learned. The crowd rightly concludes that Jesus would make a great king. They're not wrong in their conclusion, but he didn't come for that purpose. He didn't come for those accolades. They thought he can deliver from our most pressing need. If that's how you see Jesus, you miss the importance of his coming. 
He's not here to meet your needs and to get you out of your difficult circumstances. And if you preach this text and your concluding thought is, Jesus can get me out of my problems, you have savaged the text. You've maligned it. You misunderstand it. I'm not saying it's an appropriate application from the text that Jesus can take my meager resources and do amazing things with them. That is true. But if I go away from this text saying, I want him to be my king, he can feed me. He can deliver me from Rome. He'd be a great political leader. You miss it. You miss it. He's going to spend the rest of this chapter driving home a nail. And the nail is, I am the bread of life. And when he says that, he is not talking about bread to fill your stomach. He's saying, if you eat eat the bread that I gave you, you'll hunger again. These people are going to need another meal. The teenagers there an hour later are going to be like, I'm hungry. Right? But Jesus says, if you eat the bread that I give you, you will never be hungry again. Rings a bell from John chapter 4, right? If you drink the water I give you, you'll never thirst again. Okay, what is Jesus doing? He's ramping up their understanding. He's disclosing more of his divinity to them. He's showing them that he is not simply a Moses who directs the feeding. He's the God who provides. And he's the God who, when you take him into your life, when you by faith receive and partake fully of him, he will change your life. He aims to give you eternal life. Not bread for the day, but bread for life. Okay, just, so I don't, want you to, I don't want you to miss this main point. He is the greater Moses who was a prophet, who was a king figure. Moses also was a priest, but Moses never laid down his life for others. And Jesus did. Do you see? Jesus is a Moses-like character, but Jesus is certainly greater than Moses. The focus of Christ is not your temporary relief. It is to give you eternal life. You know, as I studied this, and it's interesting, ladies, that you're here today. Because as I studied through this text, I, I, I always think of analogies uh, or organizations that get the gospel. Okay? And when I think of the Hoving Home, I think of an organization that gets the gospel. Okay, let me explain. The Hoving Home exists at one level, to help people find freedom, right? From life-altering addictions, right? Here's the truth. If all that the Hoving Home does for you is give you freedom from the things that bind you, they have not helped you eternally. Does that make sense? Jesus did not come simply to free people. And to feed people. He came to forgive people. Not to meet temporary needs. But to meet eternal needs. That's why when you look at this account. You cannot simply focus on the temporal benefit of knowing Christ. Which is amazing and awesome and praiseworthy. But it is not the whole story. Does that make sense? It's not the whole story. The aim is not simply to free. It is to transform and alter people's eternal destiny. 
John 20, 21 says this, and it says it over and it says it, it, it's stated once in John 21, but it comes up repeatedly in the text. Jesus did many miracles. Eight are recorded in the Gospel of John. These eight are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's why if I look at this text and I make it only about he meets my needs, he takes my, my small gifts and my small talents and he makes me an amazing person. If that's what you go away with in this text, you missed the point. The aim of this text is not to make much of people. It's to make much of Jesus. Because only Jesus goes to the cross to bear the consequence and punishment of the sin that I so greatly deserve. He does not simply come to deliver you. He comes to transform you. So I can say as a practical lesson, limited resources may strain our faith, but they do not strain God's capacity. And that's a lesson you can go away with today. What's the circumstance that God has you in where the resources don't quite meet the need? But if you trust God, you're going to see him come through for you, right? And I say, amen. Praise God. Praise God. That's the practical application. The theological application, the deeper application is hunger is a temporary problem. Sin is an eternal problem. Later in John chapter 6, Jesus will speak to the crowd who comes and finds them again. And here's Jesus' answer. They, they come and said, Jesus, how did you get here? Verse 26, Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you were looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, meaning you didn't see the message I was declaring in my actions. You sought me because you ate the loaves and had your fill. That's the danger we all face. I love a Jesus who gets me out of my problems and meet my, meets my needs. That's what the crowd wanted. That's what they got out of the story. But Jesus go on, goes on in verse 27. He says this. He says, do not work for food that spoils. Don't work for food that has a temporary value and then the value fades away. Don't work for that but work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Verse 29, Jesus answered and says this, The work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent, not to domesticate him, not to get out of him what I can, but to honor him and praise him and follow him and love him and serve him. That's the aim of this miracle. So that we would walk away saying, Jesus is greater than I realized. John 6.35, Jesus will conclude some of this discussion by saying, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst again. So here's the question I ask you this morning. Have you trusted in... And received Jesus, the true bread of life. Have you ever come to realize that your real problem is not your temporal circumstances, your addictions, your brokenness, your lacks 
your sickness? Have you come to realize that that is not my real problem? My real problem is that I am a sinner deserving of God's judgment. And that the Son of God came to stand in my place to take the wrath of God that I deserve so that I could be forgiven. And respond to Him in the simplest, profoundest faith. Have you trusted and received? And the terminology that Jesus will use through the rest of the chapter is this idea of taking Jesus and partaking of Him. Sounds a lot like when I get to the communion table and Jesus says to His disciples, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. The provision that meets temporal needs aims to teach something about the provision that meets eternal needs. Do you see? This text moves from the lesser miracle of giving bread, which is a beautiful, beautiful account, to the most beautiful account and the greater account. That the one who broke bread and provided for people's needs can meet my greatest need. He can free me from my sin and he can use my life for his glory. Have you trusted him? When I think about sharing the good news of Christ and The aim of Christ in this account is to teach the disciples a little bit more so that they would be well suited to communicate the greatness of Jesus, the saving work of Jesus to the multitudes later. It's the aim of this text. Here's the way I look at sharing Jesus. Sharing Jesus is one beggar telling another beggar where to get free bread. Okay, evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where he or she can get free bread. Folks, that's that's the joy of the gospel. That's the joy of sharing Jesus with others. That I have nothing. I don't have religion. I don't have performance. I have Christ. And that for me was free. It was free bread that has eternally satisfied my deepest need. And sharing Christ is just simply saying to people, I found something free, and in faith I received it. I want to tell you where you can get the same thing. Folks, that's what we do. We walk with Christ who loves us, who does meet our needs, who takes our meager resources and allows them to accomplish things that are greater than we could ever imagine. But even more, He has poured into my life. He has filled me with bread that sustains, that gives life. And he says to me, now go, Tim, go. Find a beggar who's hungry and share hope with them. Folks, that's not that hard. You know why most of us don't share Christ? We have far too complicated schemes in our mind about how it has to happen. You know, all you have to do is say to people, I was a sinner. I am a sinner. Jesus Christ loved me. He shed his blood for me. He forgave me by grace through faith alone. And I'll do the same for you. It's not complicated. Somebody gives you a gift, it's easy to share. May God help us as a church. You know, we, we, we've said this often. That we, we, we I, I was talking to a person in town, uh, I forget if it was, Someone cutting my hair or... I forget where I was. But I was trying to identify with this person. I said, well, actually, I'm one of, the, one of the pastoral team members at the ShopRite. You know, we, we, 
Yeah, that's what happened. But I was like, you know, and somebody said this when we first came in, like, we still serve food. Like, but we serve bread of life. Okay? We're a place where you come and find not something that will sustain you for three or four hours. But we have something that will sustain you for eternity. That's why I don't want to go away from this text saying, Jesus will use your weak capacities to do amazing things. Wow. It's true. It's true. Not the point of this text. The point of this text is that Jesus served temporary bread to create a hunger for eternal bread that will change your life forever. If you've never eaten the bread, I would beg of you today, as we close, just to say, Jesus, I believe today that you are the bread of life. I'm a sinner undeserving, but you promised to give me a gift, and today I want to eat that bread. I want to drink that cup in faith so that your temporary supply will become for me an eternal supply so that my temporary needs will be wrapped up in your eternal, gracious supply. Folks, that's why when Jesus says, you feed them, we say, crap, I don't know how to do this. I can't. But we step out in faith, saying, okay, God, use me to meet the need in this person's life. Like, give me a little bread, and I'll go deliver it. That's the joyful Christian life. You just walk around saying, I'm satisfied, I'm full, I'm good for eternity. You're making no difference. May God help us to grasp the bread and to deliver the bread to people that need to receive it, find their needs met. May God help us. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, This text is in all four Gospels for a reason. These are written so that you might believe. Lord, sometimes we're just like the disciples. We believe and we're still growing in believing. God, when we hit circumstances that are hard, when we see people struggling, we want to communicate to them hope. Let us not look at the largeness of the crowd or the lateness of the hour or the lack of supply or the remoteness of the person. God, let us go in Jesus' name to share bread that gives life. That if they partake, they will never hunger again. I pray this morning, Lord, if there's someone here who has that gaping hole inside spiritually, that the God who can meet the physical need can, in an even greater way, meet the eternal need. And I pray that today they may lay hold of you, Lord Jesus, as bread of life and receive you fully and freely in a life-changing way. pray these blessings in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.